Uh, The reading this morning is from Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been spending the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue over the next few weeks, about just reminding ourselves what it means to be church. We come here together week by week. We know that we are more than just what happens on a Sunday. We're more than just this building. We are God's people here in this place. But trying to understand God's purposes for the church. So we've been pondering a little bit about that over the last few weeks. And this reading is is very, very short, but it's full of real depth. And so I just want us to spend a bit of time this morning trying to fully understand what Paul is saying. Firstly, we need to understand who he's speaking to, because we've picked this up halfway through a story. And whenever something starts with something like consequently, we need to realise that it goes back. We have to understand consequently what. And Paul is speaking to the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. And the early church when it started, was predominantly filled with Jewish people. Jewish people who had grown up in that faith, who had met Jesus, and who realised that Jesus, who was also Jewish, was offering something new. As the Son of God, he had come and was offering a new way of understanding God, a new relationship with God, a new access to God. But that early church was predominantly from people who had previously been Jewish, culturally were still Jewish, and had now this new understanding of Christian faith. They weren't called Christians at this point, that came later on. But, as the good news spread, people who were not Jewish were coming into the fellowship, were coming to realise the good news of Jesus, were coming to believe that for themselves and form part of the fellowship. And as you can imagine, there was the risk of a little bit of an antagonism between the two. You're not really part of us because you haven't got that same background. You haven't got that same heritage. Almost you're second-class citizens within this new way of being together. We're the true people of faith because we can trace our faith all the way back to Abraham. And you can't. Gentiles were anybody who wasn't Jewish. And Paul writes a lot to the early church saying, this is not the case anymore. You have to realise what it is that Jesus has done. He's broken down all the barriers. And you are family together. So consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. This is really radical. It's radical for the Jews Because they need to understand that 
up until now, their faith had been very boundaried and very protected. And, and the rules and the regulations that God had given them protected those safe boundaries. And now those boundaries had been torn down. The, you know, remember the crucifixion, the temple was torn, the curtain in the temple was torn down. A symbol of those barriers being broken down. And they're having to realise that the welcome is open to all. And for the Gentiles, what they're hearing is this. You belong. You belong to this new family. You belong by virtue of who you are and what Jesus has done for you, rather than anything in your background. And knowing that we belong is one of the most important human needs we have. We long to belong. I'm sure you've got experience of sitting on the edge of a group and not really feeling that you actually belong and what that can be like. That is what it had been like for the Gentiles. They were part of it, but not really. And Paul is saying, you belong. You have a right to be here. More than a right, you are fellow members of God's household together. We know this. But in this time, when Paul was writing, this was completely radical. In a society that kept its boundaries very tight, men and women, Gentiles and Jews, slave and free, you knew your place in society and you kept within it. This has just been completely torn down. This new fellowship, this new family, this new community was building up. The Jews had to learn to be open and welcoming and the Gentiles needed to learn that they belonged. And together, they became church. Not for the sake of it. They became church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Christ himself as the thing that binds that whole community together. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Again, if you're reading this as somebody from a Jewish heritage, you see the word temple, and immediately you realise that this again is something radical. Think of the history of the Jewish people. A lot of it was around the temple, building the temple, having the temple in Jerusalem, when they were in exile in Babylon, not having the temple was massively important to them. And now Jesus, now Paul is saying, you are becoming the temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. And in you as a people, God dwells. Do we think about that when we come here on a Sunday? When we gather together, that we are built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone and that God dwells amongst us. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? That is who we are. That is who we are created to be. And when we live as church in that way, the Spirit can move and we can become the people that God has called us to be and we can become the witness to the rest of the world of who Jesus is just a very few verses but with such deep truths of who we are and how easy it is to forget that how easy it is to forget what we are designed to be 
and how God dwells amongst us. So it's easy to read Ephesians and to think about the big theology and the big picture and be slightly blown away. What does that look like in practice? What does church look like in practice? And I want to share three pictures with you this morning. The final one is a, is a parable, a modern parable. But the first two are things that I have been involved with over the last two weeks. Number one is Thy Kingdom Come, which was an event for ten days, globally, of people coming together to pray. To pray that the Kingdom of God would break into our world today and that people would come to know Jesus for themselves. And in Guildford, this culminated in a festival of prayer at the cathedral. I had the privilege of being involved in the steering group that that planned that. And so on that Sunday, I left church here, went straight up to the cathedral, got there about 12 o'clock and got back home at about 9 o'clock. During the day, people said to me, are you pleased with how it's going? And I have to say, I didn't quite know how to answer that because when you're so involved in something, to step back and think, is this working? Is this what we want it to be? Is incredibly difficult. But that following week, some photographs were posted on the um, diocesan website. And as I flicked through, there was 185 of them. I'm not going to show you 185. But I thought, wow, this shows me So what we wanted, what we planned, actually happened. Because what this was, was a gathering of all sorts of people. Not just Anglican, but ecumenical, that means other Christian denominations. Not just one type of worship, but varied worship. And a whole range of different ways of praying. And we're going to look at some photographs now as a snapshot of unity and diversity. We're not all the same, but when we come together, there is a power and we can see God dwelling amongst us. So, Nick, if we can just flick through these pictures and I'll explain some of them. So this was the Holy Spirit bar as you arrived into the cathedral. It was Pentecost and the drinks, all soft drinks, represented fruits of the Spirit and you could take the drink of which fruit you felt that actually you most liked. I will say David Peters took the one on self-discipline. He said, I've chosen self-discipline and he had a a glass of of self-discipline but it was reminding us of the fruits of the Spirit but it was colourful, there was children involved. That was one demonstration of the church. The next one, I just love that one. Just stunning in this huge building, this little boy just smiling. That's wonderful, isn't it? This was the ecumenical leaders who come and were representing, so Baptists, Methodists, URC, Roman Catholic, Father Nile, who is the vicar of Nazareth, he was there, which was wonderful, the dean of the cathedral, and our two bishops. Next, oh, and the Coptic um, archbishop as well. This was um, the Copts, who are very hospitable with their food. Next one. A couple of young people just kneeling and praying. Really powerful. Next one. Gospel choir, as you came in. You can see a variety of representations of worship and prayer. Next one. The Copts, as you walked in, there was incense and the food. Their demonstration. Um, This is a music group that played and just prayed over people as they played music. Next one. This is the band getting ready, reminding us what we're there for. Bishop Andrew. Next one. This is Father Niall, and this is the wall representing the wall in Bethlehem. And seeing Father Niall putting prayers 
and what's a reality for him. He's in Nazareth. He lives near the wall. And him standing, putting a prayer. And we pushed, it was um, like a fence, and you pushed the prayers as you would at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Next one. This was during the contemporary worship where there were moments of quiet. You think of big bands and noise, and there was quiet as everybody prayed. That's the prayer in worship. That's praising God. We had Tese worship in the cathedral choir because there's not just one way of worshipping God. A view of the evening celebration. And I think that's it. Yeah. For me, thy kingdom come represented what it means to celebrate our diversity, but to be united in coming together in prayer and worship. The church, united in its diversity. And the power of prayer and worship in this variety of ways that it happened. So for me, that was a really strong picture of what Paul is saying in Ephesians. You can't have that every week. But well, what a picture it was. And so during the week, I was able to thank God and say, thank you, Lord. It did do what it was meant to do. It brought people together in prayer and worship. My second picture is last week's pilgrimage. On Sunday morning last week, I think there were 75 of our congregation in Canterbury Cathedral worshipping together. And again, when you're involved in the planning of something, as it's going on, it's very hard to to take that step back and to, to really see what is happening. And there was a lot of logistics in the pilgrimage. But sitting back in Canterbury Cathedral, I literally did. I had nothing to do. Joy. Service was being led by other people. I sat back and I looked around and I thought, we are gathered here together. We have come away from where we are used to being. We've walked together. We've talked to one another. As you walk, you talk to different people. I walked on Saturday and I walked on Sunday. Others had walked for the whole three days. But as you walk, you talk to different people. And it's not necessarily deep, heavy chats, but you get to know each other better. We prayed together. I know that um, the guys who set off on Thursday got a text as they were walking along that, that somebody's husband was very ill, and they stopped. This is the 30-mile walkers. They didn't have much time to stop. But they stopped to pray together. And the power they felt in actually recognising that as they were walking and celebrating, a friend was ill. And they took that time to stop and to pray. We ate together. Picnics in the pub on Saturday night. We ate together wonderfully at King's School in Canterbury. 75 of us, or it might have been, I'm not quite sure how many at that point, but able to sit together in one place, eating together. God's people eat together, they share together, they pray together. And then we worship together in Canterbury Cathedral. As we were sitting waiting, I spotted Justin Welby's wife arrive. And I was slightly on alert, thinking, hmm, it's Caroline Welby, that's interesting. But he could have been anywhere in the world. The dean came to welcome everybody to the cathedral and the choir and clergy were queuing up to process and I spotted a mitre and I thought, this is looking quite hopeful. (laughs) And as the procession came, the last person to come in was Justin Welby. I have to say, looking at the faces of my congregation was really amazing. Incredibly humbling 
and a real joy to see that not only were we in Canterbury Cathedral, but the Archbishop of Canterbury was presiding. And we had front seat, and we could see all that he was doing. And at the peace he came, I was in the second row, but all those who were in the front row received the peace from the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I just looked and thought, wow, you're amazing, God. (laughs) Because this has been an amazing experience, just for what it is. And this felt like the icing on the cake. Not that he's anything, he's a humble man. An incredibly humble man. But what he represents is the unity and diversity of the church. And we were in Canterbury Cathedral, which was not our place. We were welcomed. The chief steward had prepared for us, had set aside chairs for us. There were other groups from America, from Africa. There was the congregation there who meet there regularly. We were a scattered people gathered together in Canterbury Cathedral, worshipping God together. And it represented unity and it represented diversity. And it was a joy to be there and very, very special. Those of you who were there, do tell those who weren't, just talk to them. Talk to them about your experiences because then we share together. We share together that amazing experience, not just limited to those who happen to be sitting there. Oh, and then for me, the absolute high point. The chief steward came over to me and said, who are the ones that walked the furthest? Would two of them bring up the wine? And um, I looked across and Mike and Guy were sitting very close to each other. So I went over. They'd just come from walking 90, 100 miles in their shorts, slightly tired feet. And in that slightly, they wouldn't mind me saying scruffy appearance, (laughs) joined the dignity and the pomp of Canterbury Cathedral in bringing up the wine. And you know, that didn't matter because that's part of Canterbury's welcome. Welcoming in anybody, the tired-footed, scruffy men who had walked nearly a hundred miles, had a place in the worship that Sunday morning. And I sat and thought, well, this is good. This is really special. This is really powerful. And it was a sign to me of what Paul is talking about. This is church at its best. When we gather together. And we are united in our diversity. So we know what church is meant to be. And how do we do that more and more? We can't watch Canterbury every week. Heaven forbid. <laughs> how do we hold what I saw at the cathedral in Guildford? How do I hold the experience of walking together, sharing together, looking after one another? How do we hold that and relish that fellowship, but recognize that something of who we are is turning outside too in order to welcome more in to experience what is so precious to us. So this is a modern parable. This is picture number three. And you may well have heard this, but it's powerful, so bear with me. This is the parable of the life-saving station. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that soon it became famous. 
Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in a larger building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some had skin of a different colour. Some spoke a strange language. And the beautiful new club was messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club, where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. It's an amusing story. Because as we experience what the precious nature of being church, we can become a little bit safe and secure and want to keep it like that. And yet, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians, the reason that we are church is that God dwells amongst us. And God wants everyone to come to know him. Thy kingdom come was about praying that others would know Jesus not about a celebration in the cathedral, wonderful as it was, where Christians gathered together. The whole reason for thy kingdom come, the whole reason for existing as church, is to be Jesus to those who don't yet know him. And so how do we maintain fellowship, unity through diversity, community, all that is precious, whilst looking outwards. Because if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of who we are and why we're meant to be here. And we too might become that exclusive club that has a beautiful building, has some very lovely people. Just look at yourselves. But actually we're here for those who don't yet know Jesus. I don't have the answers. What I'm feeling at the moment 
is a sense that God is stirring a little bit. Because we've grown. We've grown a lot in a relatively short time for a village church. And now I come in and it's lovely. We even need people in the chapel because we're quite full. When you get to that point, there's a risk of plateau. Because there's not many empty seats for people to come in. And churches go through periods of time where they have to think, what stage are we at now? When I arrived, it was really important to invest in fellowship because there had been a lot of hurt. And we needed to grow together in love and unity. And God has honoured that. And when a church is working as it should do, people are attracted to it and join. We need to make sure that we don't plateau and stick where we are but that makes space, metaphorically and physically, for those who are not yet part of our fellowship. We need to make sure that we're looking outwards, that we create space, whatever that might look like, and that we never lose sight of our purpose. I think our journey over the next couple of years, God will be saying to us, what might you need to do to cherish what is good, but to offer it to more. It's so exciting to have a full church, but a full church is full, and therefore we become closed doors. How do we open the doors wider so that more might come in? And I just wonder whether that's the journey for the next stage of our life together. I leave that with you to pray, to contemplate, and talk to me. Because when God is speaking, he doesn't just speak to the vicar. In fact, sometimes the vicar is the last person he speaks to. He speaks to the people because we are God together. We are here together. And God is speaking to you. So listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. And please tell me. Because I need wisdom and I need insight. Amen.